0: Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker.
1: So, here's a joke for my seven year old twin boys What's a mummy's favorite music? I don't know. Rap.
0: I'm Brendan Francis Noonan.
2: I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win this week's dinner parties.
0: You just got a joke from author Joanna Hershon that'll help break the ice. Her new novel is called A Dual Inheritance, and we'll hear her read from it later. Also, we'll speak with actress Andrea Ricebarrow, star of the sci-fi movie Oblivion, and the new spy drama Shadow Dancer.
2: Also coming up, you'll learn why America is about to be flooded with Italian pork. Plus, neo-soul musician Michael Fitzpatrick provides
3: some fashion advice. Shoulder pads, everybody, shoulder pads. They
0: help protect you on the dance floor, you know. Because no one will come up to you (laughs) if you're wearing shoulder pads. That's sad. But first, as
2: at any dinner party, we start by accelerating directly into small talk.
4: All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. The Boy Scouts of America allow openly gay boys to join the organization. The tornado that struck the city of Moore, Oklahoma, was the strongest possible rating for a tornado. Tech giant Apple on the hot seat for tax practices that saved the company billions.
0: Now for something you haven't heard, we are joined by Mara Eakin. She is the music editor for The A.V. Club, an entertainment website published by The Onion. Mara, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend?
5: My One of my favorite stories recently is the story about this woman who used a 3D printer to make LPs on wood, basically different kinds of wood, like maple or plywood. Wow. And so she recorded Whoa. Velvet Underground songs and Radiohead songs. Wait,
0: wood records? Yeah. Like wood LPs? Yeah. Platters. Yeah, formerly, I thought wood records were when you only sold about 10 records. Yeah. You know, instead of <laughs> platinum, you went wood. Yeah, you go wood. <laughs> my band in but, college. What would? But she's making these records. Can you play the records?
5: You can play them, and you can hear the music. It's certainly not as good of like a sound conductor as vinyl, but hmm. you can definitely hear it, and it's kind of a neat way to to hear music. But
0: you can't scratch it because you might get splinters. Yeah, that's yeah. right. So for DJs, this is a bum deal.
2: And
5: it'll ruin your needle probably after like one <laughs> one use. You,
2: is there a clip of this maybe that we can listen to?
5: Yeah, totally. Here's Radiohead's Idiotech on a wood LP. <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay. So that sounds awful, but I I collect vinyl records. I'm like really into records. I still kind of want to get a wood record. What, what is it about collectors like I kind of don't care what it sounds like? <laughs> They've figured that out. That's why. I guess that's true. <laughs>
5: no, you always want the weirdest, neatest thing. And
2: somehow also the more primitive that it is. Like if, if they released a record that was etched into a coelacanth.
5: Yeah. I
0: would be really into
2: like an it. an
5: old shell. <laughs> so
0: you guys can collect this record. I will use it as a cutting board. And oh, nice. Yeah, for $30. <laughs> it's fantastic. Uh, Mara Egan. thanks so much for the small talk. <laughs> Thank you. And now, time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's like history's a squirt gun, but instead of water, it's filled with daiquiris. Isn't that nice? It <laughs> makes me want to shoot myself in the mouth. Me too. Anyway, we start with the history. This week, back in 1899, a New Yorker received a dubious honor. America's first speeding citation, to be exact. Michelle Philippi tells the tale.
6: At the turn of the century, speeding was a relative term. Evidence? The case of Jacob German. He was your typical New York City taxi driver, screaming around town in his cab, blowing past horse-drawn carriages and pedestrians. Finally, on May twentieth, 1899, He zoomed past a bike cop who promptly pulled him over and gave him the first speeding citation ever. But how did a bike cop manage to keep up, you ask? Well, Jacob was only going 12 miles an hour. Back then, the limit was eight or four if you were making a turn. And if Jacob's speed wasn't outrageous by modern standards, his punishment was he spent a night in the slammer. It took a few years for the justice system to realize that punishment didn't exactly fit the crime. But finally, in 1904, a guy named Harry Myers got pulled over in Dayton, Ohio, and instead of jail, was served the first ever actual paper ticket. No one seems to know the exact amount of Harry's fine, but it was definitely less than the one a Swiss millionaire got slapped with in 2010. He was caught in his Ferrari, going 85 through a village in Switzerland, where speeding fines are based on the driver's wealth. He paid a world record $290,000.
0: So that was the history. Now for the cocktail to go along with it, I am joined by Colin Maxwell. He is lead bartender at Lexington Brass and Lexington Avenue is where Jacob got his speeding ticket. Uh, Colin, what cocktail did it inspire you to make?
4: The piece of the story that I latched onto was the fact that that speeding ticket was issued by a bicycle police officer. Yeah, I pictured a big front
0: wheel, little back wheel.
4: Exactly, and I feel like with the tiny amount of respect that any cop on a bicycle these days gets, they should really be latching onto the fact that they were the original people that were tracking down speeders and pulling people over and everything.
0: If it wasn't for them, there would be no California Highway Patrol with Poncherella and everything like that.
4: Exactly. The Ponch is a direct descendant of this nameless officer.
0: Alright, so how are we going to celebrate this unnamed hero? Uh,
4: so the drink I came up with is uh, the Policeman's Bicycle. It's a twist on a classic aperitif cocktail called a Bicyclette, Campari white wine and club soda but I wanted to soup it up a little bit to respect the cops.
0: The bicycle that sounds a little dainty, I agree, so we
4: need something a little more robust. Policeman's bicycle feels like there's probably guns mounted on it and you can handcuff somebody to it. So we're gonna start with a wine glass filled with ice, then we're gonna go with an ounce and a quarter of Aperol. What is Aperol? Bartenders always think of Aperol as Campari's little cousin or something. It's very bitter, very grapefruity but it has a slightly higher sugar content and a slightly lower alcohol content. All right, and so what's next? Then we're going to do just a half ounce of Hendrix gin, two ounces of New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, a half ounce of lemon juice.
0: And it's got a beautiful kind of uh, orange color going on there right now.
4: Yeah, kind of somewhere between a red light and a yellow light, I guess.
0: Well, he, only, he got a speeding ticket. He didn't run any lights.
4: I don't even know if they had lights in 1899, to be honest. And then we're just going to top it off with club soda and garnish it with an orange wedge.
0: All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try it. That almost tastes healthy.
4: Almost tastes healthy, yes.
0: You know those V8 commercials where people walk, they straighten up? This is the opposite. That you drink this, you'll ride your bike sideways afterwards. Exactly. <laughs> so, Rico, interesting fact. A right. movie was made about the first speeding citation. Really? A silent movie. Yeah. Or a kinetoscope, I guess they called it back in the day. In fact, it was. And some consider it the precursor <laughs> to the Fast and Furious movies. Right. It was called Slow and Mildly Annoyed. Interesting. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it starred Vin Diesel's grandfather, I That's think. That's right.
0: Is that right? Vincent Steam? Mm. I think was his name. Folks, uh, you can find all of our cocktail recipes at our Not Very Fast website, dinnerpartydownload.org. So we've made some small talk, sipped a cocktail, but the party hasn't officially started without tunes to play. And here with suggestions is Michael Fitzpatrick, leader of the band Fitz in the Tantrums their
2: soul-heavy debut album, Picking Up the Pieces, topped Billboard's Heat Seekers chart. They just released the follow-up. It's called More Than Just a Dream. It's influenced by music of a certain era,
3: and so is this party playlist. Hey, everybody, this is Fitz from Fitz and the Tantrums, and the theme for my dinner party is All Things 80s, one of my favorite periods of songwriting ever. <laughs> So the, the first track for the dinner party is a track off of Tears for Fears' first album called The Hurting. This one's called uh, Change. You into the room I just to love Many people know them from when they got way poppier, but for those of us who had a little more darkness of the dark side, a little goth in us, the songwriting is just heartbreaking and beautiful. Every cut on this record just, you know, sends me to somewhere else. the production especially on Change is using uh, marimbas and it's just this perfect blending between the organic and electronic elements you know that to me is what I love about the 80s was that moment where technology really came into the foreground and then all these people were using it but trying to do it in an organic way and still make it about songwriting what would my 80s dinner party look like well one It would definitely have a flock of seagulls hairdos like the one that I like to sort of sport on a daily basis today in 2013. And then, you know, shoulder pads, everybody, shoulder pads. The second track I would play at my uh, dinner party would have to be ABC's The Look of Love. It's just got like the funkiest groove, but with like some really like weird sort of synth bass lines. I don't remember hearing it for the first time. I think I literally inherited my brother's uh, beat up copy of it on cassette tape and wore that thing till it broke. This record is one of the most pristine examples of the 80s finding their influence and inspiration from soul music, which is a a real through line for Fits and the Tantrums. I think on our first record, everyone thought that we just had made this uh, soul, vintage, purist record, but it was always more so soul music through the lens of British bands during the 80s. So my third and final song for the All Things 80s Dinner Party has to be one of my favorite tracks, Haircut 100, Love Plus One. This was when the saxophone was actually kind of still cool and being really actually used quite a bit in a lot of that 80s new wave music. That's an instrument that's been a big part of of Fits into Tantrums, and it's just a, a nice connection from the past to the present and what our band does. That is a total prom song. That's like a, a prom makeout song. Love plus one. Did that play at my prom? I can't remember, nor can I disclose that information. Alright, well, if you forced me to play a song from my next record, I would have to pick the first single, which to me is a true ode to the 80s. To me, it's one of those feel-good summer tracks from like 1989 that just makes you want to be driving to the beach when you still didn't have to put sunscreen on. This one's called Out of My League."
2: Dinner Party soundtrack from Michael Fitzpatrick of neo-soul band Fitz and the Tantrums. Their new album is called More Than Just a Dream.
0: Enrico, I used to have that Flock of Seagulls haircut for years, with really? the long bangs in the front, short in the back. The reverse mullet, we called it <laughs> back <laughs> That's then. That's right. Instead of covering your neck, it covers your face. That's right. Which makes life complicated. A little. But it covers your acne, which is a <laughs> bonus. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a break. Coming up, America meets
2: Culatello. And we meet actress Andrea Riseborough when the Dinner Party download
0: continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm
2: Rico Galliano. Later, we hear a new track from the Dodos. That would not be the flightless bird. They're extinct, but the band. But first, it's time to meet our guest of honor.
0: And this week, it's English actress Andrea Ricebarrow. She's made a name for herself, portraying some of the world's most notorious women, Mm -hmm. including a young Margaret Thatcher in the TV movie The Long Walk to Finchley and Wallace Simpson in the movie W.E.
2: Directed by the notorious Madonna,
0: speaking of which. Notoriously directed by her. That's right. Uh, Andrea stars alongside Tom Cruise in the sci-fi thriller Oblivion. And next week, her latest movie comes out, the historical drama Shadow Dance. In it, she plays Colette McVeigh, a young mother who's a member of the Irish Republican Army along with her brothers. She's captured by the British and given the choice of going to jail and losing her son or spying on her family. Mm. When I met with Andrea this week, I asked how it felt to immerse herself in such a troubling time.
7: It was difficult and harrowing to research and also fascinating and uh, moving and hopeful because the incredible people in Belfast on every side had gotten through a period that was riddled with anxi- anxiety and paranoia, men drinking vodka just to get through the day, women taking pills only to ease the anxiety of not knowing whether their child would be able to make it to school, family members not knowing if their brothers and sisters were also members of the same party, not knowing whether they were informants, not knowing who to trust, literally inside of your own family. Terrifying.
2: When did you first hear about the operation, Colette? This morning in the car. In the car this morning?
1: Aye. You sure about that? Aye. No one mentioned it before then?
7: No.
1: Let's see, it's like this, Colette. Only two men knew the time of the place, right? And it's hardly our Jerry
5: squealing to the Brits. So is it a shaggy-haired brother? Or did he blab his fat mouth off to his sister?
0: I thought it was interesting to see a movie about the unrest in Ireland that focused on a woman. Other movies have covered this topic, but it was interesting to have the protagonist be a woman in such kind of a rough male
7: milieu. Is that part of the reason you were attracted to the role? Well, that was just my industry grossly misrepresenting what was real. (laughs) Because actually it was very common. Many members were women, of course. It's a no-brainer. Who do you, who looks least conspicuous? Mm-hmm. Who looks more gentle and less likely to plant a bomb? Mm-hmm. That makes total sense.
0: So this film was directed by James Marsh, who is uh, most famous for his documentary films, including Man on Wire, for which he won an Academy Award. Uh, when you were working with him, did you notice that he had a different approach to filmmaking than a traditional fiction film director?
7: The reason that I wanted to work with James was because... I think he is an extraordinary filmmaker. And there were moments in Man on Wire and in Project Nim in which he leaves the camera running just a second too long. He's a very gentle and very kind man. He allows people to feel comfortable and then allows them to question themselves without forcing them into anything in an uncomfortable way. And you see that as people finish a sentence that they're very convicted about And then there's a moment as the camera still rolls where you see them question their own moral compass. And I was hoping that we would be able to use that talent that he has of getting inside of those moments of self-judgment with Colette. She has this very keen sense of self, but not really any idea of what she wants or needs. As a person, she sacrificed her own emotions for this cause that she's convicted to, so convicted to herself.
0: Watching the film, I got the sense that she believed in the cause. But there's also a lot of evidence in the movie that there were psychological reasons for what she was doing. In the opening scene, she loses her little brother. He gets caught in the crossfire of a battle related to the unrest. And she feels responsible. And then we skip ahead, and she has a son about his same age. And it seems like the family uh, really was one of the major motivating factors for her doing what she was doing.
7: Politics is personal. Essentially, politics is about on a grassroots level, how our family's affected. And in that way this film is deeply political, in the truest sense. It's so easy to lose sight of what you're trying to preserve in an effort to trying to preserve it. One of the interesting things about Colette to me was that the thing that she'd lost in all of this was having any kind of connection to her own son. It's not that she's trying to re-establish a relationship with him. She's trying to form a relationship with a child that she gave birth to, who she has no real quality of life. I know James's motivation for wanting to explore the story was that, was the family element, which is political, more than trying to teach people about what happened with the Troubles. If we were to do that, the story would be more than one-sided. It would, have a, it would be a documentary, and it would be a, a, about a whole different thing.
0: We have two standard questions that we ask all the guests on our show. And the first question is, what question are you tired of being asked in interviews? Um, and that's a laugh for people who can't see.
7: <laughs> there, are, there are a few. <laughs> you can just pick one. Um, my worst of all time is, what are you wearing?
0: So was it a phone interview?
7: No, no, no. Who are you wearing? You know. Oh, who are you wearing? Itself is just horribly bad grammar. <laughs> but aside from anything, anything to do with fashion, it just, of course, it's there's an agreement that we all have that we help each other out. The fashion world and, and my industry, you know, female actresses uh, uh, <laughs> as opposed to the male actresses. <laughs> um, but that that's the first question after you've poured your heart and soul into something for six months. That can be really soul destroying.
0: Well, that wouldn't make much sense anyway, since this is radio. No one can see what you're wearing. Uh, All right. Our second question is, tell us something we don't know. And this can be either about you, uh, something you haven't shared in interviews before, or it can be just an interesting fact about the world.
7: I'm not sure that I know anything that that, that somebody wouldn't know. (laughs) And all the things I know about myself would be so deeply (laughs) uninteresting. There must be something.
0: I know that you dropped out of college and... Worked at a Sardinian restaurant for a while. That you had a little greeting guard company. Oh
7: yeah, my name's Margaret.
0: So Andrea is your stage name?
7: No, no. My my, I, my, my. That's all I can say. My name's Margaret. It's a secret. Yeah, it's a secret.
0: <laughs> so Brendan, Margaret. That's it? That is all that she would tell you? It's true. It's a total mystery. But I'm sure she didn't pull it out of thin air because as I was gathering my things to leave, she showed me a keychain that she pulled out of her purse, and it did indeed say Margaret in sparkly pink (laughs) letters.
2: It's it's a Brit
0: (laughs) with a secret name. Yeah. This
2: is like the beginning of a Miss Marple mystery. (laughs) Uh, People, if you have any theories as to why Andrea calls herself Margaret, you'll find our email at dinnerpartydownload.org.
0: In the living room with the lead pipe.
6: To eavesdrop
2: author joanna Hershon has written four novels in 2007 she was shortlisted for the o henry prize her latest book came out this month today we overhear her reading a dinner party worthy excerpt
1: hi my name is joanna Hershon, and i have a new book called a dual inheritance so the book begins in 1962 at Harvard in the fall of senior year of Ed Cantowitz, who is a working class Jewish kid on scholarship, and Hugh Shipley, who's from an important Boston Brahmin family against which he is chafing considerably. And so here's a scene in which Hugh decides he's really had enough, and in his small way, is going to make a big step. That springtime of his junior year, he had been on some sort of full-fledged upswing, where the very weather seemed to support his plans and his mood, and this stirring feeling lasted throughout the summer, when he had worked, vowing it would be the very last time, at the yacht club on Fisher's Island. He vowed not to work at the club ever again, not because he didn't love sailing, but he knew it was a disgrace to belong to a club with discriminatory policies against Negroes. Jews too, of course. He had gone so far as to arrange a meeting with the club president, an elderly distant cousin, to explain his feelings on the matter of discrimination. And after a hand-folding pause, the president-slash-cousin replied in a disturbingly kind voice, I'm glad you have told me your feelings on this matter, Hugh. You are? Of course. You know your family plays an important part in the history here. To be honest, sir, I don't care about my family's important history as much as I care about what is going on right here and right now. Yes. You know, he said, as he stood up and fixed himself a finger of gin on ice, man is tribal. Yes, sir, that I know. Anthropology happens to be my concentration. And you are a Harvard man, too, just like your father. So you are the last person I need to explain this to, I'm sure. He looked Hugh in the eye and smiled. We are tribal by nature, and this, Hugh, is our tribe. He took a slow sip of his gin. It's hardly that simple, Hugh tried. Young man, this is our home. We have a right to choose who enters our home. But it isn't a home, said Hugh. Look, he said, gesturing out the open window toward the blue sky and sea and rolling green hills and the freshwater ponds and hydrangea bushes and that slight breeze, which would soon carry the official whiff of gin at precisely five o'clock. If you think that changing some policy is going to alter the essentially tribal natures of society, forgive me, but you need to re-examine your expectations. This club president, who was in fact Hugh's grandmother's second cousin, a man named Tribby Eaton, a man Hugh had loved and admired as a child, who'd once given him a bowl of peanuts and a Coke after he'd lost a sunfish race. "'This is where you come from,' he said. And again, his voice was kind. In Hugh's mind, he was raising his own voice, telling the old man to go stuff it, to stuff the traditions and the island and all of his justifications. But as Tribby Eaton showed in the door, Hugh couldn't help noting that the older man looked sad. "'Sad,' And when Hugh told him that he wished to revoke his membership, there was none of the victorious feeling he'd anticipated, none of the moral clarity he enjoyed when he played out the scenario before. But the point had been made, and it was he who had made it, and that meant more than anything else. Didn't it?
0: Writer Joanna Hershon reading an excerpt from her new book, A Dual Inheritance, and you're listening to The Dinner Party Download from American Public Media, where everyone is welcome.
2: And now time for chattering class when we are schooled by an expert in some dinner party worthy topic this week our topic is protecting art and culture during wartime and our teacher is robert m edsel he is founder and president of the monuments men foundation and author of the new nonfiction book saving italy the race to rescue a nation's treasures from the nazis and robert welcome
8: thank you rico great to be here
2: now you also wrote the bestseller the monuments men And the Monuments Men are some of the central characters in this book. For those unfamiliar with them, tell us first who they are. Uh,
8: The Monuments Men, it's kind of a silly name. Um, (laughs) The formal name of the group was Monuments, Fine Arts, and Archives Section. This is a group of middle-aged museum directors, curators, art historians, professors, artists themselves that had the vision to see that with the um, introduction of the United States into World War II and going to Europe, The great threat of trying to defeat Hitler and the Nazis might be destroying all of Western civilization's cultural treasures. So they lobbied to create this group to introduce a new kind of soldier charged with saving rather than destroying and then volunteered for service. Um, At that age, they had every reason in the world to not do this, but they felt they had an important contribution to make and wanted to go to Europe and help. Right, I'm I'm sure they
2: were not quite like this, but I envision Indiana Jones a little bit, a sort of archaeologist saving the ark from the Nazis.
8: Yeah, I had that discussion one time with uh, Steven Spielberg's producer of that film, uh, Kathleen Kennedy Marshall, and I, you know, my my quip to her was, "Yeah, but Indiana Jones is make believe, and this is real." No, I have to say, as the host of an arts and culture show, I
2: obviously see these guys as heroes, but I can imagine some, and I believe this was an argument made by some at the time who are like, "Both sides are killing people en masse in the." wars isn't there kind of a moral disconnect that in the midst of ending lives you're expending all this energy trying to preserve objects
8: it's an interesting uh, observation but I really think it goes to the heart of the issue I mean when we see holocausts begin uh, with a lowercase h what gets attacked first aren't the people it's their culture it's Mm -hmm. an effort to try and destroy what people believe in And have them live to see the things that they value destroyed and erased. And then almost as a coup de grace, yes, there are these horrific things. But Hmm. General Eisenhower and President Roosevelt understood if you were going to do more than just, you know, try and win hearts and minds as a phrase, you had to show respect for the things that people valued and treasured. All right. Well, along these lines, some of the passages in the book that
2: I found the most fascinating are when military commanders have to deal with these conflicting directives on the one hand. They're deep in the chaos of war, and they're trying to win battles and protect their men. And on the other hand, these monuments men are telling them to try not to destroy these irreplaceable cultural treasures. You want to talk a little bit about the Battle of Monte Cassino in Naples?
8: Well, that's a classic case. I mean, the the Allied forces are stuck in this uh, Leary Valley in the Abbey of Monte Cassino, which sits up on top of this promontory. There's no way to get around it. Yeah. The German troops are uh, completely occupying the hills. Some American and British commanders are convinced they're inside the abbey, but it, it was the timing of it. General Eisenhower had issued this historic directive, first time, that said it was a responsibility not just of his commanders, but all troops to protect cultural treasures so much as war allowed. Yeah, so, so the idea
2: of, you know, so much as war allows becomes this gray area. Do you bum? this
8: historic abbey just in case there are Germans inside it? Well, in this case, after months of horrible fighting and horrific allied losses, the decision was made that this abbey was reduced largely to rubble, and yet the Germans did use it as fortification, and the battle continued for three more months. Basically, the Germans just used the rubble to hide behind. They did. But the point here was that there was consideration given to it. Now, you go back to one of the first things I tell in the book is the near destruction of The Last Supper by Leonardo da Vinci that was 80 feet away from a British bomb that was targeting Milan and all of its cultural treasures. And that's where I think the alarm bells really go off in Washington with people realizing this is just one thing in this treasure-laden country. Um, It's got disaster written all over it if we're not more careful.
2: Last question. You interviewed a lot of the last surviving members of the Monuments Men. Do you remember anything specifically that they were very proud of saving artworks or buildings they were very proud well, of? Well, I
8: think, you know, the the experience of talking to these heroes of civilization, when you pull out uh, books with photographs and flip through them, I mean, they have tears in their eyes with this sense of pride in the things that were saved. And, of course, Dean Keller, one of the two people we focus on in, in Saving Italy, um... Single-handedly is responsible for the survival of the Campo Santo, the medieval cemetery in Pisa, and Fred Hart, um, a number of the medieval towers that define the city in Florence, were saved from, as he referred to it, the devouring bulldozer, because mm. he realized they were damaged but repairable as opposed to damaged and uh, torn down by army engineers.
2: Army engineers were going to tear them down because they seemed like they were damaged and maybe unsafe or something?
8: There was so much rubble, they couldn't even get tractors in to move the rubble, so they're just trying to move move things out of the way to get some working space, and some of the towers are in the way of doing this, so they wanted to tear them down. And in fact, Hart would just basically made himself like a human shield and would stand there to keep the bulldozers away, and he made a major pain in the ass of himself, <laughs> but he felt that was the only way to get the point across, we got to save this stuff.
2: We're really glad that he did. And uh, thank you for writing this book. Robert M. Edsel, thanks for being our teacher today.
8: Thank you, Rico. Robert's book, once
2: again, is called Saving Italy. And Brendan, his book Monuments Men, is being made into a movie with George Clooney directing and starring.
0: Wow. Yeah. So they, they might secure a little monument as well.
2: I would think <laughs> so. A little tiny golden man. A
0: little gold guy.
2: Throw me the idol.
0: All right. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, coming up, we're going to hear a new song from the Dodos. Nice. We're going to meet some new meats, And mm. I've been waiting to say that all week. And Emily Post's great, great grandchildren answer your etiquette questions. It would be rude to turn the dial, so sit up straight till the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the dinner party download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Brendan Francis Newham. I'm Rico Galliano. Coming up, Chef Chad
2: Colby anticipates an Italian meat flood. I mean when you go to Italy and, and just
9: about every region, you're swimming in pork.
2: Don, your sausage casing swim caps. already have it. Nice. Also, later, we hear a new tune from the Dodos. But first, it's time for our etiquette segment.
0: Yes, each week you send us your questions about how to behave. Sometimes we have celebrities answer your questions. And yes, sometimes we have celebrities of etiquette answer your questions. That would be Lizzie Post and Daniel Post Senig. The great-great-grandkids of Emily Post herself. They stop by our studios once a month to keep us in line. They're co-authors of Emily Post's Etiquette, the 18th edition, and they help run the most conflict-free place on the planet, the Emily Post Institute in Vermont. Lizzie, Dan, welcome back.
10: Oh, thanks so much for having us, guys.
0: Gentlemen, it's a pleasure.
2: Is it totally conflict-free? If there's ever an argument, do people go, wait a minute, what are we doing right now? I'm not familiar with this emotion (laughs) called anger.
10: Oh, I so wish that that's what our world looks <laughs> gonna...
2: like. I just imagine it like a bunch of no Mr. Way. Spocks walking around. It's, it's truly a
11: family business, and uh, <laughs> is often the case with families. You sometimes take some latitude with family. Then. Can
10: you imagine working with your family? No.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I have a question, do you guys dress formally at the Institute? <laughs>
11: Tuxes. A little more formal than the standard in Burlington, I'd say.
1: Okay.
10: I am going to say that Dan is speaking for himself. I have a tendency to be in a plaid shirt and jeans 99% of the time. Okay, but
0: that is dressed up, I think, for Burlington.
2: Yeah.
10: Burlington, yes. That's
0: a Burlington
2: tuxedo. <laughs> as long as you're not wearing a knit cap, you're fancy. I don't know. Yeah. All right. Here's a, let's get give you some of these questions from uh, our anxious listeners. Here is one from Sarah in Oakland by the way as a los angelino i don't entirely understand this question but she writes something called public transportation
7: hmm. Uh, hmm. she
2: rides it to and from work and she says i have noticed there seems to be much less consideration nowadays for giving up seats to people who need them if i'm standing and notice someone who clearly needs a seat is it okay for me to say something to people who have seats or should I keep it to myself and just silently judge everyone?
0: Mm. <laughs> always do that. Yeah. I mean, always.
2: She finally writes, it seems like the people who actually need a seat are not always comfortable asking for one.
10: Oh, I think that that's very true. Um, obviously, we'd like someone to stand up and offer a seat to the pregnant woman or to the person who just broke their leg mm-hmm. or to the elderly couple. And when you are the one who's seated and you're of that mindset, it's really important to to be the one to stand up and offer but i'm i'm with her silently judge them is the way to go <laughs> mm. on when, when when you're standing when you can't be the one to offer them a seat
2: you don't um, you don't make the decision for the other person
10: right and especially yeah. i mean my experiences with public transportation sometimes you get some eccentric and and, and frustrated individuals oh, you know they've had a long day and if you decide to step in and make a judgment call about you know, oh, yeah. what they're doing or what they're not doing. You
0: might have a rant on your hands. What about a stern throat clearing? <clears> throat> <Like> a, <clears> throat> staring at the person yeah. sitting, yeah, next to there the pregnant go. lady. Yeah. Is that okay?
10: She's pregnant.
11: <laughs> the reproachful yeah. glance is certainly an option. <laughs> Although you don't want to turn into the glarer.
0: <laughs> wow, I like that. The reproachful glance, not the glare. It's very subtle differences. All right, so this here's a question. Uh, this comes from Alyssa in Ohio. I'm a college student. If someone invites me over for a casual hangout and I bring a six-pack of beer to share with the hosts in return for their hospitality and food that they've offered to share, is it rude to take the leftover beers with me?
10: This is totally a Seinfeld marble rye.
0: Whoa. I'm not familiar. It's,
10: oh, my God, guys. Come on. <laughs> I'm sorry. We're radio people. If Seinfeld a radio show? George brings the marble rye. Does he get to take it home if they don't use it during the meal? Uh, that's um, right. No, the official answer is if, if you're bringing a gift for the hostess, especially as a way to say thank you, that you then leave it with the host. Of course. Yeah you would not take those beers back.
2: But Alyssa is a college student, and I'm assuming that she'd be going over to another college student's house. Doesn't totally. everybody understand you don't have very much money, and probably that beer so, would help you out?
10: So how about rather than bring a whole six-pack, she brings, like, three beers.
0: And if you're a
2: college student, how about
0: you finish the beer? <laughs> yeah.
10: I mean, the, come on. What else are you saying? Okay, that point just takes it all, right? Yeah, That's
0: what you're in college for. Exactly. Seriously. All right, Alyssa, there you go. There's your guidance. Here's something from Joyce
2: in Ireland. Hooray. Joyce writes, is there a polite but diplomatic way to respond when someone makes a comment, revealing a religious stereotype, and insulting the person he or she is speaking to?
0: In Ireland, huh? What could she be referring to? I
2: do not know. (laughs) Example, me, I have ten siblings. Responder, ten siblings you must be Catholic.
10: Let's go back to an old favorite. I think her response should just be, you're fat. <laughs> like, <laughs> By fire
2: with fire, I guess. Is that really legit? No. Um,
10: in terms of a comment that she could make, I, I mean, I guess saying like, yeah, never heard that one before could be like, that, mm. that's sort of... A little
11: humor to diffuse a, a the situation is one like, way to go. The yeah. other is to engage. You know, you, you might get that impression. Some people think that that's true of all Catholics, but it's not necessarily that way. You could also go with the earnest reply
2: and engage a a little bit
0: like, not all Catholics, my sister's a nun.
2: <laughs> Good
0: point.
2: Here we go. Our last question is Chris in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And Chris writes, what's the best way to handle a customer service representative who is decidedly not giving good customer service? Hate is such a strong word, but I think it applies to how I feel about these interactions. (laughs) This is definitely a problem I sympathize with.
11: And just about everybody does. This is actually a question we get not infrequently at the Institute. And the answer is you kill them with kindness. You're going to get better results if you keep a smile on your face and keep being nice. Really? No matter what you're confronted with. Absolutely. But what
2: about squeaky wheel gets the grease? That whole deal.
11: I
10: don't think it's your place to ream out a customer service salesperson. I don't think you are going to win anything by launching back at them when they're being difficult with you. Mm. But Mm. what I do think is that you do what Dan says, is you be nice and you work your way through it. And at the end, with a positive tone, you ask to speak to a manager. Oh, I
2: Mm. see. If they finally don't
0: give. See, that's close.
2: If
10: they are really giving you trouble, that's close. Wait a second. Who's the expert? (laughs) (laughs) No. (laughs) You're right. (laughs) Lizzie, you are almost right. (laughs) right on that. No, let me tell you. He,
5: I'm glad
2: we had you on the show,
0: but... That's close to how I do things. I do something I call the tickle and slap, where you're nice to them, you make oh them laugh, God. you kill them and with slap. kindness, and then when you get what you need or you realize you really can't get anything else, then you open up, because that's going to make you feel better. The end it, right? <laughs> I normally would not
2: defend Brendan in almost any situation, but I was just thinking, you know, like, well, what does that do? That's just selfish. But it isn't totally, because that customer service representative, if you don't let them know that they're being a jerk, is going to be a jerk to so many people. You, you could argue that you are doing a service to the community.
0: Yeah, and I'm not saying
2: curse at so, the person. So
10: I think that you're doing that service in both circumstances. I think that you're doing that service if you choose to speak directly to them, and I think you're doing that service if you choose to speak to their manager.
7: Okay. Because would, either
10: way, they are going to get the message that the service that they're providing is not helpful and it's it's creating mm. more problems than it's solving.
11: And I got to weigh in as the eternal optimist. Somewhere in, in the middle there is you represent yourself well but without yes. stooping to someone else's level.
10: I, of course. Dead on. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right. Yes. I shouldn't have yes. used
0: the word slap. I just meant tickle 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 stern talking to. Tickle tickle. tickle. <laughs> you no,
2: know? oh,
10: you're but so wonderful, but really you're being exciting. a total jerk. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's all I'm not getting up for you
2: in the subway ever. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Lizzie Post and Daniel Post sending thank you, however, for providing an excellent service to us and to our listeners on this fine day. Oh, thank you. Channel it's always the best
10: to be on the show.
2: And ladies and gentlemen, if you found yourselves using the reproachful glance, the tickle and slap, or the stern throat clearing, it means you probably have an etiquette question on your hands.
0: Or you're having dinner with my father. That's probably true. (laughs) Feel free to send your question to us, and we'll bring it up with experts Lizzie and Dan, or a totally unqualified celebrity. Yeah, just roll the dice and email us via our website. It's dinnerpartydownload.org.
2: Or submit your question through the Dinner Party Hotline, a.k.a. the phone at Brendan's Cubicle. The number is 213-621-3460. That's 213-621-3460.
0: Your call will be recorded for quality assurance. And now, it's time for the main course, where we talk about our favorite part of the dinner party, the food. Yes, and Brendan, I ask you, what could be bad about
2: delicious meats full of fat and cured with salt? Fat salt exactly it's the perfect (laughs) food i say so you're a fan of the cured meats that is what i'm saying all right especially italian stuff like prosciutto the problem is though that for decades the usda has banned many italian cured meats from being imported into this country well starting this tuesday that ban is being lifted for some meats
0: from certain regions of italy all right that is true. So for you, this is like prohibition ending. And, but yes, I'm throwing party. I can see your heartbeat rising already. <laughs> and
2: Along with your blood pressure. That's right. And in anticipation of that health explosion, I spoke with Chad Colby. He is chef at L.A. restaurant Chispaca, which is the only restaurant in the city licensed to make its own salumi, that is cured meats. Uh, I started by asking him what Italian salumi we've been missing.
9: I mean, all the good stuff. I mean, when you go to Italy and, and just about every region, you're swimming in pork and pork products and cured meats. Is that a good thing? Uh, it's a great thing. One of the key reasons why I'm drawn to Italian food is you know, it has everything that some of the other countries have with the bonus of fantastic cured meats.
2: So when you say all the good stuff, like give me a few examples, what are some things that we don't have here that you get there? Lardo,
9: which is fantastic, cured pork fat. Well, we don't have any salami that comes from Italy. and Really, none of the salami that we eat in America is from Italy? No, I've certainly brought back as much as I could
2: in my suitcase that went in under the radar. <laughs> I'm sure we we won't have you incriminate yourself any further, but what I mean, why not? I guess that's the bigger question: is what what is the USDA's problem? So the,
9: for cured meats, it's a, it's considered a raw product. It never it never is is cooked with heat. So USDA they've created a system that they deem acceptable for cured meats, and it's too strict. They, they tend to aim for extra safe product. So that means it needs to be a little bit more dry, it needs to be a little bit more salty, so all the product that is allowed to come to the United States goes through these USDA standards, not necessarily the producer's standards.
2: I see, and a lot of salami makers in Italy aren't won't conform to those standards.
9: Yeah, so uh, a small producer of salumi would create a product based on tradition. Based on what they enjoy to eat, local seasonings, local aesthetics, and would never really change that product to what an international market like the United States would say. We deem that prosciutto is safe if it's made with 4% salt. It's going to
2: be like, my grandfather has done this. We've been doing this for like a thousand years this way. Who are you to tell me to do it different?
9: Right. They're, they're looking to produce a product to continue their heritage.
2: But I still see, you know, like prosciutto di parma in the grocery store. So, you know, why is that allowed in the States and this other stuff isn't?
9: So the, the prosciutto, I believe it was about 15 years ago, was, was first allowed in the United States and the usda said that we would allow prosciutto if it meets these salt ratios these dryness levels and so the same producers would create an american product for export and within the same facility they would do like other cuts that aren't
2: imported so the stuff that we're getting the prosciutto department that i see in the grocery store is not the same prosciutto department that i might get in actual italy
9: you're more likely within italy to get something from a smaller producer that typically would have less salt and come from an Italian processing plant, which would be different from
2: one design for the American market. All right, so we're looking at some of your product, which is more like this stuff that you would find in Italy. First of all, what are we looking at here on the
9: left? A piece of salami, cured for five months, and um, I have it spiced with a little bit of Aleppo chilies. Oh,
2: wow. And I also noticed the thing that is much different than say the store-bought salami that I normally see is just the fat ratio. There's like big squares of fat in, in every slice. Is that typical of a certain kind of Italian preparation?
9: It's typical of small production. And what we're doing is we're hand dicing the fat, which is a very labor-intensive product. It's a labor of love. I've been here a few times till three in the morning cutting it by myself. Were you inspired by anything
2: that you saw in your travels in Italy?
9: Aesthetically, the chew of the salami, the, the fat ratio is all inspired by Italy. The salami that was the uh, most similar to, to this one, to this style, were um, some artisan ones that I had in and outside of Bologna.
2: So this is as close as I'm gonna to get to that until the end of the month. I hope so. All right, here we go. Oh, I love it. This is really bringing me back to the salami that I get in Italy. It's, it is, it's a little less salty, and there's a sweetness to it, surprisingly, although I'm getting the heat now from the peppers right now. So this is salami. What makes salami, salami?
9: So the, the word salumi is a blanket for all cured meats. Salami is something that's been ground uh, like a sausage.
2: I see. So so a prosciutto
9: is like. is uh, whole muscle. So whole muscle is where you would isolate one muscle from the pig, cure it, and then slice it. So prosciutto is from the back leg, the uh, copa is from the shoulder, pancetta is the pork belly. Those are all of our whole muscle cures.
2: It's amazing. I've been eating these things my entire life and I had no idea what the difference was. It was just tasty meats to me. (laughs) I need to ask you about one more thing that apparently everybody is very excited about seeing imported into the US, which is culatello, which I read about first in um, Bill Buford's book, Heat. He talks about culatello and just being in Italy and tasting culatello. What is culatello and why is it so prized?
9: So culatello is actually a group of a couple muscles within the leg for prosciutto. So anytime you make a culatello, you're sacrificing a whole prosciutto.
2: And you're deciding not to turn that part into prosciutto. You're turning it into culatello.
9: Correct. And anyone with an understanding of Spanish knows the, uh, the vulgar translation you could get from it. It's, it's literally the, uh, the meaty end of the, of the hind leg. It's the butt. Let's just say it. It's the butt. Correct. But why is it so particularly prized? It's the most flavorful bite within the prosciutto. So if you just cure that one part, it just becomes the the king of all cured meats.
2: But why is it so especially forbidden, though? Like my understanding is that even the EU is a little bit wary of the uh, the health connotations of this particular item. What what's worrisome about it?
9: The the first thing I would say it has to do with the bladders. It's traditionally stuffed into a pork bladder. It has to do with uh, the U.S. Today's concern of, of possible pathogen contamination through the, the usage of wrapping a bladder around a piece of pork and not keeping it
2: in the refrigerator. It does at first blush sound a little disgusting. You're putting a butt in a bladder <laughs> and letting it hang in midair. Yeah,
9: and it, you know, it's, it would be more of like the butt cheek, you know, the meaty
2: part. Um. <laughs> and yet everybody wants it. It just goes to show you that the most homely thing
0: has its purpose in this world. So Rico, if coolatello is rump in a bladder, yeah. I got that right. Yeah. What's Galiano? Oh. <laughs> that is my foot in your <laughs> I think that's banned. It's a simple preparation. All right, and that's the dinner party download, folks. Next week, we've got something for fans of the TV show Arrested Development, which returns this weekend after a seven year hiatus. Yes. The show's uncensored matriarch Lucille Bluth, aka actress Jessica Walter, will be here to answer etiquette questions, and she actually seems kind of nice.
1: Seem? What do you mean, seem? <laughs> Is there a doubt?
2: Jackson Musker is the assistant producer of the Dinner Party Download. He's kind of nice. He is. Our interns are the very nice Tamika Adams, Davy Kim, and Brittany Martin. Our executive producer is Peter Clowney. Thanks this week to Bill Lance. And now, before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties.
0: Along with having very interesting names, Merrick Long and Logan Krober have nice. a band called the Dodos. They're known for their indie folk sound, but their upcoming album entitled Carrier is a tad heavier, as evidenced by this track called Confidence. Bon appétit. I'm Rico Galliano, And I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Thanks for listening to The Dinner Party Download. All right, later. Where are you going dressed up so nice?
2: Um, uh, I'm meeting a friend at the airport coming in from Rome.
0: It's oh, a friend, huh? Cool. His name wouldn't be Colatello by any chance, would it? No. Then why are you bringing a tube of crackers and a knife?
2: Okay, ciao.